A lot of killers. You get a lot of killers. Why, well, you think our country's so innocent? 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 They're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? People think I don't like China. I love China. China. China is the new China, by the way. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Good morning. Welcome to a Trump show. I'm Dennis Trainer Jr. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, 2017. And today in North Dakota, the last remaining water protectors at Standing Rock face a 2 p.m. deadline to vacate camp. In a moment, I'll speak with Chase Ironize, a Native American activist, attorney, and politician who's a member of the Standing Rock Sioux. Chase is also a member of the Lakota People's Law Project and a co-founder of the Native American News website, Last Real Indians, and in 2016, ran for United States Congress. Briefly, here's where we are in the epic, almost year-long struggle to protect the water by stopping the Dakota Access Pipeline from drilling under the Missouri River and under tribal lands granted to them in treaties that the United States, of course, has violated. It has been a peaceful and prayerful protest that has been ongoing since April of 2016. It has captured the imaginations of people all over the world and faces today overwhelming force of local, state, and federal agencies, including the Morton County Police, Bureau of Indian Affairs, National Park Service Rangers, and the Department of Homeland Security, and perhaps others, armed for war, prepared to enforce this deadline. This tactic of the militarized police state acting as agents in our country's longest war, our war against the Native Americans, has been well documented. Water protectors have been shot with rubber bullets, tased, and blasted with water cannons in freezing temperatures. The water cannon tactic reminiscent of the civil rights protests in the 1960s. Also, as reported in The Guardian, the FBI has been contacting several water protectors, raising alarm that an indigenous-led movement is being construed as domestic terrorism. Miniwakoni, or Water is Life, has become the rallying cry for this movement, and on December 4th, 2016, I was at Standing Rock when a victory, albeit a temporary one, was achieved as President Obama had the Army Corps of Engineers deny an easement that energy transfer partners needed to finish construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. As part of this delay, an environmental impact statement was to be completed. Donald Trump reversed that decision and halted the environmental impact statement when he issued an executive order on January 24th of this year during his first week as president ordering the go-ahead of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Although it's not explicitly written on Trump's executive order, it may have well have been titled Money is Life. Yesterday, I spoke with Chase Ironize as he was making the final preparations for today's coming deadline. Here is that conversation. Uh, joining me now is uh, Chase Ironize. Um, Chase, listeners and viewers of the program have seen how outrageous law enforcement agencies have acted at various other flashpoints during this almost year-long um, peaceful, prayerful occupation and uh, protection of the water there. What do you expect and what will your reaction be? What will you personally be doing 
when bodies are being forcibly evicted tomorrow, if it if it if that does come to pass. Yes, uh, we will be on the ground um, starting at you know eight in the morning, and then at at, at about the noon hour at twelve p.m. Central Time, uh, the Army Corps has has indicated that it is going to provide a warning, a notice to people who are at the camp that they intend to raid it and that they intend to arrest people, you know, pursuant to federal law for criminal trespass. And then two hours later, uh, the raid will happen. But I'll, I'll be on the ground um, and I have not, you know, everybody's making their own decisions about the level of their commitment to this fight. It is an international treaty fight that belongs to the Great Sioux Nation and the Northern Arapaho and the Northern Cheyenne uh, Native nations that all signed treaties. In, with regard to the uh, area in question, but not one of those native nations is physically on the ground backing up the right of water protectors to be north of the Cannibal River. And so it's kind of leaving the water protectors out, out in the cold, so to speak. But a lot of United States veterans have responded. Um, a lot of people are coming back. They've answered the call of the water protectors, which went out requesting all media, all mainstream, all independent media, all water protectors, all support to come to bear witness, to come to stand in prayer and to ensure that uh, nothing bad happens to those people who are uh, on the ground, who are who may be at the level of commitment to uh, risk their liberties. Speak to the difference between what's happening now and what happened the first week of December. Uh, I was there on the first week of December, uh, as were as many as 10,000 people, including veterans, as you mentioned, uh, some of whom are, are coming back. But even without the veterans, there were thousands and thousands of individuals there, um, and many, much fewer now. I'll let you characterize the number that you see on the ground there. Um, there yeah. are... There are, there are um, different messages coming from right now the the Sioux, right? So there's some criticism yeah. that's been published by the Washington Times and the Guardian and others who are recording accounts that uh, people are being critical of Chairman Archambault, some even going as far as to call him Dapple Dave. Uh, how do you, What do you ascribe to the reason for the difference in numbers today and in, on December 4th? Uh, it's definitely a state of confusion caused by... Uh, an economic sanction, a hardship, the roadblock that the people of Standing Rock were made to suffer under. It, 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 there's a backstory. You have to understand that that road that the governor of North Dakota blocked in the most militarized fashion prevented all uh, disposable or discretionary income that comes to the Standing Rock tribal government through the casino, through casino revenue. And so that put a tremendous amount of pressure on Chairman Archambault upon that council um, to get rid of that roadblock. And so their method of doing that is to evict 
the very people that they invited here to protect their water. Mm. And uh, that's that's basically it. Uh, same thing happened to us in the late 1800s when we wouldn't sign away, we wouldn't agree to uh, allow the United States to illegally annex the Black Hills. They said that, uh, you know, while we killed all your buffalo, we caused an economic destruction, and now you're dependent on our ration system. Like, Indian, you have to get in this line, get a ticket, and this is how you get your flour, your sugar, your coffee, your beef, or your bacon fat. And uh, if you don't sign this paper saying that you agree to our illegal annexation, we will not give out rations this time or the next time or the next time and your children will starve. So it's the same concept, just the forms are different. And so that caused our shamble to tell people on December 4th that because Obama with less than, you know, 50 days left to his presidency prevented drilling from going underneath the water and destroying our water because Obama did that. We have won this fight now, and it's time for all the water protectors to go home. I mean, nobody believed that right. on the ground, but everybody out in the world doesn't know any better. They look at a chairman like like they are a chief in, in the Western sense of their understanding of that word, and that a person that they describe or attribute chief-like authorities to sits atop some hierarchy it has some sort of command and speaks for everybody on the ground, which is a completely ludicrous concept to Indian leadership, but the world doesn't understand. So when they see someone they identify as being the chief of the movement saying, look, we won. It's time for you guys to go home. Nobody else come. It's too cold here. You might die. Your prayers have been answered. We won. Please go home. That has a chilling effect on, on the support that, is coming because people like myself, people like LaDonna Brable Ellard and other members of the Standing Rock Nation have stepped in and said, look, this fight is not over. Please come back. But, the, but in reality, North Dakota winters are very, very harsh. The numbers dwindled. And now people are kind of in a state of confusion, I think in a state of exhaustion and to not have one tribe uh, step forward and, and support a ground presence north of the Cannonball River in the contested treaty area that is going to be raided. Uh, that, that has a lot of impact in terms of media coverage, in terms of moral and legal support, more importantly. There are tribes involved that are definitely supporting the movement, and they should be lauded for that, and that includes the Oglala Sioux Tribe, the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, and uh, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, all of whom uh, have legal actions initiated in the federal court system but not any of the eight tribal nations that have a right to assert themselves here are backing the ground fight. They've backed off from that and said, we are going to focus on the political and legal fight. So that's what's accounting for the changing numbers. So what might seem potentially like a low point and without some miraculous um, interference tomorrow, it does look like, uh, a major page will be turned in the chapter of this long fight. From afar, you know, one could say, well, Jay Sirenized, the silver lining in this is that, you know, this this 
this captured the imagination of so many people around the country, so many people of privilege, of unearned privilege, like myself, who, um, who, who were so inspired by what happened there. One of the most inspirational interviews I did while I was there was with actually, with your daughter, who talked uh, Lakota, who I, talked who talked about the next steps in the movement in trying to di- in trying to get banks to divest. Uh, uh, from and we've seen some victories. Uh, Seattle, the city of Seattle, is divested from uh, Wells Fargo Bank, which is invested in uh, Deco- in um, Energy Transfer Partners. Uh, for you, how do you assess? Assuming that tomorrow is the end of a long chapter, how do you assess what was gained uh, in this uh, stand with Standing Rock movement? Yes, well, t- tomorrow will definitely uh, turn a page in this struggle, and that is that the. North camp, the the treaty camp, you know, the camp in the liberated zone, the camp that expresses our original and inherent authorities to uh, determine our destiny in our own homeland, our internationally and contractually protected homeland. Um, we are going to be forcibly evicted from that homeland, that parcel of land, that treaty land. But it doesn't mean that the struggle ends. Everybody is going to either get arrested or they're, they're going to fall back uh, into the, you know, the confinement of the reservation, which we were placed under, you know, in starting in 1873 and, and pro- progressively uh, worse after that. But some people are going to fall back and be available to, to continue to fight this pipeline. But we have to be realistic in that the focus or the, you know, the focal point of the fight, which has been at Standing Rock in a most historical and monumental way. I mean, Standing Rock has become the epicenter for an international spiritual movement, which includes all of these various struggles. And so, uh, now we plan to boost that to continue to fight and continue to express our international character and to express that we are willing to incorporate other aspects of extremely important struggles like the fight to uh, protect our constitutional rights, the fight against Trump tyranny, the fight for a clean energy economy now, and and the fight against too big to fail finance and extraction. Uh, It'll just change forms. Well, I do want to thank you for uh, your part in inspiring and educating and opening my eyes and so many other people's eyes uh, in this long struggle. Uh, I want to wish you well tomorrow. And I know as someone who's been both a media maker and an activist who has you know, gone to jail both willingly and unwillingly, uh, the kind of the kind of algorithm, the kind of calculus that one goes through on afternoons that turn into evenings like this and I know that you said that everyone's making individual decisions about what's going on tomorrow, but I, as one activist to another, I'm just very curious um, about what you see yourself doing tomorrow. And if you could write the headline uh, for how you would declare uh, the end of this particular chapter tomorrow, what would that headline uh-huh. be? What would that headline be? And what would that image be of you, um, you know, to, to support that, to support your headline? Oh, yeah. Well, personally, you know, I have uh, five prior felony charges, and the state of North Dakota mm. is currently trying to pin another one on me for inciting a riot. They, they charged myself and a lady named Vanessa Castle with inciting riot. Uh, 
And so I'm currently having to defend against a, a five-year prison sentence. And so for me personally, I'm going to be on the ground documenting. I won't be on the ground um, as an arrestable. And that's just a personal decision that I've had to make. I think a lot of people arrived at that point or, you know, at, at that point of deliberation. And it would be different if uh, one of the Sioux tribes that has a dog in this fight was supporting the frontline protectors that are north of the Cannonball River, because then that would, that would give a stronger purpose, I believe, to, to uh, the sacrifices that we're asking people to make. When, when, when they are uh, allowing themselves to be making a conscious choice to engage in civil resistance. But the headlines tomorrow, I don't think uh, it's the end of the struggle. I really do think it's the beginning. It's, it's ground zero in the first battle against Trump tyranny. Because as, as, at the same time that they're, in charging, they're charging me, with inciting a riot, you can see that Donald Trump is, is inciting this entire nation to riot when they go after everybody who, uh, who they publicly said would suffer under their regime, whether that's black lives, whether that's women's rights or the feminist movement, whether that's uh, people that they declare to be illegal human beings who have a birthright in this hemisphere, whether that's the entirety of the Muslim faith, which is over a billion people worldwide, whether they want to discriminate against, quote unquote, those people. And so we're all being united in this struggle. And at this point in time, I don't, I can't afford to spend more than five years in prison. And so we are going to have to rely on our abilities, our adaptation, and our convictions to evolve. And that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of the story of this fight. Look, the Indian wars have never ended, but now we can't believe that this is just an Indian war. This is, this is now a war, an enemy that has evolved to antagonize all of humanity and mother earth. When we talk about big extraction and big finance, the, the prison, military industrial complex when we talk about pop culture fashion beauty the advertisement industry um we are talking about a, an ongoing colonization against all human beings and all beings of mother earth so that's the struggle that has been highlighted here in which we were able to impart to the world because we have a very real and very much alive sacred spiritual connection to the waters to the lands and to the sacred sites and beings of this hemisphere and this universe. Well, as you mentioned, it's the first battle against this uh, Trump administration. But I think, you know, another thing that you mentioned is that many people are seeing, uh, even though it's the first battle against the Trump administration, this is just another battle in this 500-year-long war against the native peoples of Turtle Island. And uh, for that... Uh, for 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 to, for a growing number of people here in the United States and here on Turtle Island to say we have to come to terms with our past, uh, whether that's how we've treated the indigenous peoples or whether how whether that's how we've treated the uh, people from Africa who we brought here to be slaves and to build up this country. Um, there's no easy solution to that answer, but I think 
you will find more and more allies trying to unpack that and trying to uh, stand with you going forward in the future. So once again, I just want to thank you for that and wish you all the best tomorrow and in the future. Absolutely. We all need to forgive each other and be truthful with each other with each other and move on. I mean, that's we need to get woke and stay woke, no matter what demographic or classification we fall into. Synthetic human classification, race, color, creed, religion, all that stuff. So anytime, you just contact me. Excellent. Peace. Be well. All right. Okay, that was Chase Ironeyes, a Native American activist, attorney, politician, and a member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. I want to bring in now Michael Nigro, with whom I also spoke yesterday. Michael is a friend. He's also an award-winning filmmaker, Emmy-nominated writer, director, and social justice activist. And he's a photojournalist who's often a travel partner of mine, if you've been following any Occupy Wall Street, any Black Lives Matter movement, and certainly uh, much of the Standing Rock photos, and you've seen photos accompanying a lot of the articles that have been posted on The Guardian, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Salon, and else Vice News, and elsewhere, you probably have seen uh, some of Michael's work. Uh, we were at Standing Rock together back in December, and here now is my conversation with Michael yesterday, as he prepared to spend what will likely be what will have likely have been the last night at Oshetti Sekoan camp. All right, so Michael Nigro, thanks so much for joining me on the ground in Oshetti Sekoan camp at Standing Rock. Um, the, what we think is going to be the last stand for Standing Rock as this February 22 deadline for an eviction uh, with a promised forced eviction uh, coming um, in the morning or perhaps sooner. Uh, Michael, describe the scene there. You and I were there in the first week of December when perhaps the largest gathering of people there were there, about 10,000 people. And under the Obama administration, um, a, a minor, if temporary, victory was won when uh, a permit to grant an easement to drill under the river was was denied. Uh, of course, now we have uh, Trump as president. Um, and not nearly as many as 10,000 people there at the camp. So uh, set the scene for us. So the scene on the ground when you and I were here was completely frozen um, and covered with snow. You and I were slipping and sliding all over. It is uh, unseasonably warm here, and there's been a lot of rain. So it has melted um, a lot of the snow and the ice. But within this ice, there's a ton of garbage. And it also has created a ton of mud, um, which has made cleaning extremely difficult. That kind of landscape aside, the tone from which you and I were here is completely different as well. Um, we had this kind of euphoric moment when the easement was denied on December 4th. But now uh, the people, maybe 200 people are still here um, in Aseti. Uh, in Sacred Stone Camp, there's far more, which is... Um, uh, and, and that's where the vets are staying. And then there's also another camp that has uh, popped up on 1806, which is called the Cheyenne River Camp. And there's more vets over there. I haven't spent a whole lot of time over there, uh, but the tone from those two other camps to this one, uh, this, uh, this is a uh, people kind of, uh, I would say a little bit desperate. And um, it's still prayerful. Mm -hmm. It is still peaceful as far as I can tell. Um, but there are, uh, the, the big worry is getting a lot of the people that are, have been living here for over seven months now, 
um, and that have, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to say permanent homes, but these are their homes. And some of them um, are trying to find places to live. Yeah, I've, I've seen on your Facebook, you've been streaming live. It looks like there have been representatives from the Army Corps of Engineers who've been coming in for daily meetings at Echetis Cohen. What, what are you learning from, from the tenor of those meetings and the content of those meetings? Uh, very kind of political uh, non-speak, uh, where it's a question is asked, and the gentleman from uh, the governor's office says, I will relay that message. Um, this is about safety and getting these people out of here before the deadline. The Army Corps gentleman by the name of Major Francis Pope, he's, he's an interesting guy. He came out and said outright that he's a no-dapple guy, and so is his wife, right. which made for a very interesting conversation with him because he said, I'm duty-bound to uphold the Constitution, to which you and I had great conversations last time we were here. And I think it was Remy, um, the, the veteran, that said, you know, a soldier follows orders. A warrior does what is right. Mm-hmm. And it just rang in my head listening to the pain, hearing the pain and looking at the pain on his face when he's answering these questions from the indigenous and the indigenous allies here. Uh, because, because they know what is right. And what is right is this is treaty land. And they should not be building this pipeline. And um, all that said, all that bad news, there's still this, this undercurrent of hope with people that this is going to spread outward and that people will call and that people will continue to fight these pipelines that are coming up all over the United States. And with Trump, like he is unleashed, uh, unleashed the beast. Like he is going to try to grant all these um, pipelines to go forward, you know, forget any kind of, you know, any kind of legality of, of the matter, like an EIS, you just dismissed that. And that was the EIS, which is the environmental impact study. Nah, not going to happen this time around. To what extent do people on the ground um, attribute the small number of people gathered there for this stand versus the overwhelming show of force that was there to stay uh, in early December. Um, there are a lot of reports from Truth Dig, from The Guardian, about the kind of conflicting messages coming out of the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Uh, some people even now starting to refer to Chairman Archambault as Dapple Dave um, and, and, and trying to coalesce any any leverage that the Standing Rock Sioux have towards organizing around a massive march on Washington, D.C. in the coming weeks. Um, to what do people ascribe, to what do people on the ground there ascribe the small amount of water protectors left at camp? That is a great question because I've asked that and uh, I don't get a consistently straight answer. I do think that what is being reported in some of these other outlets that there is infighting uh, with a, a number of different groups. It's not just David Archibald. It's, it's a number of different groups of what tactics to take. And on my first day back here um, uh, at Standing Rock, what was said to me directly at the media tent, which I'm watching being taken apart right now, um, is that there are all stripes here. There are people that are going to um, peacefully leave. There are people that are going to stay and, there are, and, and, and be arrested. Um, and those numbers, those numbers vary. As you well know, with a, a, a movement like this, 
when it begins to kind of show its seams, a lot of rumors begin to, to start. And I, I, I hope it will start to unfold more clearly as to why um, there's been less of a push to maintain fear, uh, the, these, the, the, this looming spectrum of, uh, specter of Trump in the White House now, where before it kind of seemed like we had an ally in Obama, where he spoke in a, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of kinder, gentle language, where now we just have the bully. I've seen more law enforcement here uh, just as a presence. It seems to be encroaching every single day. They seem to be getting tighter and tighter. The barricade at 1806 has moved closer. There are checkpoints now that keep, uh, keep coming closer, and they are Homeland Security. They are local, federal, state uh, law enforcement. They are um, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. There's uh, DEA agents there. It's just, it's kind of a colossal, you want to see a police state? I think we're going to witness it tomorrow at two. And, you know, the other, qu- the final question I have for you, or the final line of questioning I have for you is as, just as a fellow kind of a media ally, you know, you and I have both been in situations where we can sense that something's going to happen and you kind of make a calculus of how far you're willing to go to get the story, get the shot, etc. Um... And when you and I were there in December, I remember making a very clear calculus in my mind that I was not just there to uh, get the story and film, but I was going to stand as far close to the front line as I could with the vets and that I was going to put my body in between myself and the water protectors and go to jail if necessary. And I haven't always made that choice consciously, um, although I've been to jail a couple of times uh, and, you've been, and, you've been, and you've been arrested unintentionally a couple of times yourself. You know, what is, what is the calculus that you're making right now uh, judging as you just laid out that kind of very intimidating picture of all these various different law enforcement agencies in this police state that's bearing down and the clock is ticking towards uh, 2 p.m. tomorrow? Um, I'm not on terra firma here. I came here with my directive to um, cover the way I always cover, which is to wade in and be on the front line and document what the mainstream media, I mean, I, have, I do have to jump in and say, there is not one mainstream media team here at all. I haven't seen one or even heard of one coming. It's, it's a little insane, um, but that's what you and I do. We want to tell the story that, people are not going to see and show that. So, um, but with this force that is going to roll straight through this camp, um, I'm just, the story changes by the hour. Uh, they're going to raid early. They're going to come at two o'clock. They're going to be peaceful. They are going to come in with, um, machinery with, uh, with, with sound cannons and things. It just, it never stops. My, uh, and so there's a whole media collective here that is trying to figure out um, who is going to be on the ground. And right now I'm going to be on the ground. I'm going to be staying inside the camp. Uh, More than likely I'll be staying in the camp tonight because there's rumors that they're just going to shut down the roads and that nobody's going to be able to get in, get out. Yes. Get in. No. So if I'm on the outside and I can't get in, well, then I don't get to tell that story. And clearly um, the world needs to see this. And, um, you know, those kind of game days decisions, you've got to call audibles in the midst of uh, the insanity and, 
uh, right now, it's, it's, it looks a little insane, Dennis. It looks a little insane. When I was there, a, a quote that keeps ringing out in my head is that when you and I were in one orientation or, or another, I'm not exactly sure which, uh, but a man named Johnny Asseron, um, uh, Native American, was leading, uh, was facilitating a media event, and he looked out at the overwhelmingly white crowd, of which you and I were contributing to the whiteness of the crowd, <laughs> and said, uh, this is not Dances with Wolves, and you are not Kevin Costner. Um, again, just speaking to... At the time, what had there there was an aspect of a kind of uh, white bro participating in their version of a Winter Wonderland Burning Man festival. Um, of the couple hundred people there now, I imagine there's not all two hundred tribes that were once represented at Chesapeake Tacoma Camp. Um, is is that still the case, or can you speak to uh, who is who is who are the last standing people at Standing Rock? Uh, that is a good question. I would say that there, it's a mix because you do have, uh, a white contingent that really became kind of the security here for a while. Um, a young white contingent. And, uh, but then the people that we have talked to every single person that we have talked to with the exception of the media team, um, that said that they're going to stay and stand their ground and not leave uh, at the deadline, uh, 2 p.m. on Wednesday, have all been indigenous, uh, from Omaha, from Lakota, Dakota, from different tribes. And for me to put a number on it would be really just a wild guess. Um, the most I have heard um, from just a very few amount of people are 50 people are going to stay. But it could be vastly more. The, if I look, I'm just looking out at the camp right now, it's so diffused and dispersed. And then there's just little pockets of people here and there, here and there. Uh, during the camp meeting yesterday with the um, Army Corps and the governor's office, it was, I would say, uh, I would say predominantly indigenous uh, at that meeting, at that meeting. Okay. Yeah, it's, I'm just I'm just curious because you know, and we can unpack um, this this at a later date. But it's just it's just a, it was a cur- it was a curious phenomenon in December, um, the overwhelming whiteness that be, that was Standing Rock for a moment there. Um, even and most of the people were there in in solidarity and with the best of intentions, but. Uh, like me, you know, first and foremost, we had a lot to learn about how to act in solidarity uh, at Standing Rock. Um, I really appreciate. Uh, true. I really true. appreciate your being there, Michael, and taking time to speak with me. And um, you know, stay safe and get the story. Uh, I think in that order. Um, but thank you for being there. Hey, thanks for having me on, Dennis. Appreciate it. Keep up the good work. All right, and that's our show for today, Wednesday, February 22nd, 2017. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, additional podcasts, visit atrumpshow.com, where you can support the show for as little as five bucks a month. That's atrumpshow.com.